This week on Life and Faith. I stopped in this barren area, like it was more barren than normally. <laughs> and I, I shook my head and I thought, nothing will ever grow here again. But the day before it had rained and I looked down at my feet and there's a little crack in that concrete-like soil and a green plant popping up through that crack, just a tiny little speck of green. It's just too hard. It would be easier to just go back to work tomorrow. And those were days when it wasn't dangerous at all to pick up hitchhikers. It's pretty clear that something wasn't quite right. He almost becomes a student of death. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Now, would you agree or disagree with this statement? Humanity is doomed. What about this one? The future is frightening. The results of the largest ever study on climate anxiety came out recently. The researchers talked to 10,000 young people across 10 countries, and there was a lot of support for those statements. 56% of people aged 16 to 25 agreed that humanity is doomed. 75% said yes, the future is frightening. The report's authors said climate anxiety is an inescapable stressor. Today on Life and Faith, a story of an unlikely superhero, hope for the planet and for humans. Natasha Moore brings you this interview. My name is Tony Renardo, and I'm World Vision Principal Climate Action Advisor, which is a fancy name for somebody who has the wonderful opportunity to promote nature-based solutions and in particular, a very low cost and rapid form of reforestation that not only restores the environment, but helps people to grow more food and and for their landscapes to be more productive. Yeah, you have a nickname, which is the forest maker. Like I can't think of many better nicknames than that. And, (laughs) you know, there's a filmmaker who's worked with you who has written that it is no exaggeration to say that Tony Renato may save the planet. Like not many people get things like that said about them. What are they talking about? Well, you know, um, with climate change, with land degradation, and the estimates vary, but... uh, it could be in excess of 50% of arable land is degraded to one degree or another. And deforestation, biodiversity loss, there's so many deep, deep problems that are addressed through reforestation and agroforestry. And so while it's quite an exaggeration that I might save the world, I certainly hope I can contribute to it. Just by the mere act of working with nature, and restoring balance, restoring equilibrium to the degree possible. You can have a very big impact on all those things. You can reverse biodiversity loss. You can combat climate change on two levels. One, trees draw down excess carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, so it's mitigation, but by their very presence, they help people to adapt to the changes that are already inevitable. So lower temperatures, less evaporation, Uh, more varied or greater diversity of products that the landscape can bring. Um, So, so many benefits, but um, Volker, the filmmaker, is a very good friend and uh, (laughs) I appreciate his (laughs) comments. He thinks very highly of you and your work, (laughs) which is lovely. And, And likewise, he's a wonderful, wonderful person to work with. 
I want to ask you at the end about what gives you hope as you look around at kind of the problems we're facing as a planet and a species at the moment. But at this end of the interview, I want to ask you, what is it looking around and everything you've seen? What is it about our world today that worries you? What keeps you up at night? So one of my heroes, Bill Mollison. So he's the co-founder, if you like, of permaculture, a very Australian approach to agriculture and, and culture itself. But he said the solutions to the increasingly complex problems of the world are embarrassingly simple. And all these terrible things that I just mentioned, climate change, land degradation and biodiversity loss, so on, the solutions are very, very simple. But what keeps me up at night are that many people and, and some people in power are willing to sacrifice truth for myths and do nothing about these very serious problems. And these problems will not go away on their own. They'll get worse and they'll have very serious consequences for all of us. So I, I guess here we are, we have solutions and we have people in power and, and maybe uh, people with money and resources who are ignoring the warnings and the advice and we're all going to suffer for it. So your love of plants and of the land and your concern for the environment goes back a long way, right? What first drew you? What did that look like when you were a kid growing up? Sure. So I, I grew up in beautiful northeast Victoria, uh, Myrtleford. It's a lovely spot on the Ovens River, surrounded by mountains. And in the winter, you could often see snow on Mount Buffalo and lots of forest. And I, I guess, uh, well, three things really that shaped me as a child. One was the destruction of a large area of that forest and leaving quite steep hills fallow for years on end. So there was erosion, uh, loss of wildlife, and they, they grew tobacco in that valley at that time. And DDT was in use. It was often being sprayed from aeroplanes and spray drift would go into the rivers that we swam in and drank from. And towns downstream drinking that water and occasionally there'd be terrible fish kill and, and I was just a child I didn't understand ecology but it didn't add up to me why would adults destroy the earth and effectively destroy our future so that was very very disturbing but I, I also read a lot and watched the news and while we had the luxury of growing this weed tobacco in our valley children just like me who through no fault of their own we're going to bed hungry. They, they happened to be born elsewhere. And I, I think as a child, I was very frustrated. I wanted to do something about it, put the world right, but pretty powerless. And I, I guess that's where the influence of my mum comes in. She had very strong faith. And I, I did the one thing that I felt a child could do, and I said a prayer, very simple child's prayer. Please, Lord, use me somehow, somewhere to make a difference. And I, I think my life has been an attempt to be faithful to that prayer. So you and your wife, Liz, moved to Niger in 1980. Correct. What was the plan? So we, we joined a mission organization serving in mission that had very holistic outreach. And the role that we were to play was to help people to grow more food. And we're also based at a, a sort of preparatory Bible college. So it was a literacy school, really. And our role was to help run that 
small school and to manage a small, it was then called the Moradi. Moradi is the city that we live near, Moradi Windbreak and Woodlot Project. So there was a terrible problem of desertification and terrible shortage of fuel wood, women suffering, walking long distances to collect fuel wood. And often there was none, they'd have to burn straw to cook the meal on or burn animal manure. So that project was an attempt to address those issues. How did it go? Uh, quite a failure. <laughs> and you can imagine I was a young man then and fairly fresh out of university. Both of us were. And you've got this vast degraded landscape. What had been dryland forest at the time that I was growing up in Australia, most of those trees had disappeared. And we were using conventional approach. This is all we knew and all that any other project knew was to plant trees. But given the harshness of the environment on the edge of the Sahara Desert, uh, the lack of fencing, so the free range goats and camels and other livestock, and the attitude of the people who thought this was crazy. And in fact, they called me the crazy white farmer. <laughs> you can imagine if you put yourself in their shoes, they're struggling to put food on the table. And this young nut comes along and says, well, you really should be growing trees as well. Uh, they, in their minds, they needed every bit of land that they could for growing crops. Uh, so, yeah, it was frustrating. And um, I really questioned my call. Am I in the right place? <laughs> you spent, am I right to say, 19 years? Se 17. In, 17 in years yeah. in Niger. You know, it wasn't all the same as that. Um, there was a turning point. What happened and how did that turn around? Yeah, so I, I think on one of those days when I very well could have given up, I was so frustrated and there didn't seem to be any solution. And really, we tried everything, different tree species, indigenous, exotic, different planting times, so many different things we tried. And I, I read, I consulted others, I experimented, nothing worked. And so, you know, that was the end of the world for a young, young man <laughs> wanting to have an impact. But I did feel that I was meant to be there. I did have this sense that it was the right place. And, and one day I was actually delivering a small truck and trailer load of trees to the villages. Because the, the roads are sandy and you can easily get bogged, you stop the vehicle to reduce the air pressure. And that, that enables you to almost float over that sandy road. And so there I was reducing the air pressure and you're looking up in every direction, north, south, east, west, and there's barely a tree in the landscape and the cogs are turning over. How many million dollars would it take? How many decades, how many hundred staff would you need to make an impact on that bare landscape? And of course, the answer is it's impossible. You, you wouldn't have a significant impact. And the day the last dollar was spent, would be the last tree that went into the ground. And, and most of them died anyway. <laughs> um, but I felt God doesn't make mistakes. There, there must be a reason for being here. And I, I just threw up a simple prayer. I, I, some people, it's a little bit strange. It was an inclusive prayer. So I asked God to forgive us for destroying the gift of his creation. Because it, even though I may not have been directly responsible for destroying that forest, in our wealthy, wasteful lifestyles, we've all caused to the destruction of nature. So forgive us for destroying this gift. And as a consequence of that, people are suffering. They're hungry, they're poor. They don't know what's coming tomorrow, so they're fearful. 
but I reminded God that he still loved us, that we're his children. And I just asked for help. Open our eyes, show us what to do, help. <laughs> and, you know, I'd been on that track for about two and a half years, almost weekly by that stage. Eyes open, but totally blind to what had been there all along. And on this occasion, before I got back in the vehicle, a nondescript little bush caught my attention. And I took the trouble to walk over and take a closer look at this seeming bush. As soon as I saw the shape of the leaf, and, and you can imagine for any tree, the leaf is like a signature. It spells out what species that tree is. As soon as I saw the leaf, I realized it's not a bush. It's a tree and it's been cut down. It's re-sprouting. It's trying to become a tree again. But every year, normal farming practice requires that people slash and burn that regrowth and the land gives the appearance of having no trees. And I actually call this the underground forest. But in that moment, for me, everything changed. I wasn't fighting the Sahara Desert. It wasn't a question of having a, a ridiculously large budget. Everything that I needed was literally at my feet. And the real battle was if people had reduced the environment to this point, it's, it's on its knees, it's struggling to provide for anybody, nature or humankind. If it was people's beliefs and actions about trees and nature that destroyed it, then that's where the battle was. And if I can convince people to work with nature instead of destroying it, then the rest would be relatively easy. So that, that was the big turning point, the big revelation. <laughs> so what happened after that? Well... It wasn't as easy as you would hope. I thought, now I've got the solution. <laughs> if this were a movie, the next day, everything would be different. Yeah. So, you know, as people, all of us, no matter what culture, what education, we're all sceptical and we all are slaves to habits. And so, of course, people don't want to change the way they've done things, the way their parents have taught them. And, and if anything, it was a little bit of a threat because surely trees on my land will mean competition with the crops and less food. So there was a great deal of reluctance, but I, I worked with a few individuals and it was working. That year, 1983, it was working. Trees were growing just as I thought they would. And um, I thought, wonderful, now I just need to get everyone doing this. <laughs> but the further we got into that year, uh, people would come at night, they'd chop the trees down. Maybe they were desperate for fuel wood or they had a grudge against that neighbor or for various reasons, it could have failed in 1983. But that year was also a failure year of the rainy season. The, the rains were inadequate. The crops largely shriveled up. People barely harvested anything. And the government made a ruling, if you're going to give people food, they must work. We don't want dependency. We don't want laziness. And this really worked into our hands. So over the, the following year, 1984, I had, in a sense, a captive audience. People needed the food. And one of the work requirements was for them to leave 40 of these young emerging trees, 40 per hectare. And each month we would count. <laughs> and um, if, if the trees were there, then the food allotment would be given each month. So that was, um, I guess, exposing a much wider audience to this method. Now, you would think that would do it, and especially in that in 1984, the rains were very good, and they actually harvested a bumper crop of millet, 
That's their, their staple diet. And despite that, 75% of the people, when we stop the food aid, they clap their hands, finish with Tony, chop the trees out. But the thing was, I had a critical mass. 25% said, no, maybe the guy's crazy, but it didn't do any harm. And we saw a lot of benefits, a little bit more fertility in the soil. Some of these trees provide wild foods. Uh, some of them are good for fodder for the animals. And when they grow, we'll have fuel wood and we still got a crop. And so little bit by little bit in the following years, this method spread. Not Well, certainly I was, I was promoting it through my staff, but what I learned later was I wasn't the primary actor. Farmers were simply learning from each other. And it spread, it's a bad comparison, but it spread like wildfire. <laughs> <laughs> and how are things now there? You've been back since you left. I've been back a number of times and I, I uh, stopped living there in 1999. So it's been quite a while. And the, the wonderful thing is that people still practice what we call farmer managed natural regeneration, this regeneration of trees from stumps and seeds in the ground. And it's added to the complexity and therefore the resilience of those farm systems. When you have trees in that landscape, the soil will be more fertile, the winds less severe, and winds were very damaging in that context. The temperatures in the daytime will be lower. And again, that's beneficial. And you have more products to choose from, fuel wood, fruits, honey, crops, different types of livestock. And that improved microclimate meant, yes, we still get droughts. Yes, we still get severe storms and so on. But because of the complexity, there's always something that farmers can harvest or draw from that keeps them going. So they're much more resilient population now. You're listening to Life and Faith and Natasha Moore is speaking with the forest maker, Tony Renordo from World Vision about this practice called Farmer Managed Natural Regeneration or FMNR. And apparently it's a game changer. To make sure that we get what you're talking about, can <laughs> you give me your like one to two minute explanation of what FMNR is? Sure. So when you cut a tree down, for most species, there's some exceptions, but for most species, it's not the end of the life of the tree. And they will coppice, which is a big word for they will re-sprout. And um, there'll be many shoots or stems that come up from the stump. Now, if you did nothing and there was no fire, no livestock damage and so on, eventually that would become a tree. But because there's so much competition, there may be 20 or 30 stems coming up it could take a decade or, or 20 years for it to become a tree. Farmer managed natural regeneration is the selection of the stumps that we will regrow and then the active management of those stumps. And that management involves thinning. We reduce the number of stems, pruning. We, we reduce some of the uh, side branches that come up and protection. We'll try and prevent fires. We'll try and change the way we graze our livestock or where we graze them and so on. So technically it, it's a regeneration system and we, we can do the same process on germinating seeds already in the soil. So technically it's about regeneration. It's a tool, a development tool. 
Because in order to make that happen, you need to empower and enable people and you need to facilitate mindset change. What I was talking about before where um, it was people's attitudes that did the destruction, how do we show them that working with nature is much more beneficial? So that's two levels. But if you manage to convince a whole community or, or series of communities, in effect, this method is a landscape restoration method because the cumulative impact is restoration of large-scale areas. That's probably a little bit more than two minutes. Yeah. No, that was, that was brilliant. Can you explain to me a little more what the underground forest idea means? Yeah, so um, as we drove through those barren, seemingly barren landscapes in Niger, we, we really thought there were no trees here. And that's why we were planting. When I discovered that bush, I, I realized actually the forest that had been here and was cut down, it's still present. There are millions of these bushes across this landscape. For much of the year, you can't see it. The roots are alive. It's got the capacity to regrow, but it's invisible. So that, that's where this term underground forest came from. Plus, you know, this vast repository of seed. The seeds sprawl right across that landscape and even into parts of the Sahara, there's a hidden forest if you give it a chance. So since then, you've seen farmer-managed natural regeneration work elsewhere. Does it work everywhere? What have you seen? Well, it works in a surprisingly wide range of environments from the foothills of the Himalayas to extremely arid places. I thought Niger was arid, but we did this in Somalia, Somali land, with just two to four inch rainfall. I think four inches is a hundred millimeters. And it worked. And we've done it in more tropical areas, uh, 1,000, 1,500 millimeter rainfall areas. So the principles work. In some places you might not have living tree stumps, but it could be that uh, there's a seed bank in the soil. Or if you remove the constraints, maybe there's regular burning of that landscape or continuous overgrazing that's suppressing regrowth. Or if it's in a poor country, people are removing anything that does appear, they're removing it because they need it for fuel or food or, or whatever. If you remove those constraints, nature has this enormous capacity to heal itself. And in some contexts, that may simply mean grasses come back. Maybe it was a treeless place before, but in many, many places, it's just amazing the resilience of, um, of nature and, and this bound up ability to, to spring back. I, I compare it to God's desire to forgive us. You know, we abuse nature, we do everything possible wrong again and again and again. And yet, if we repent of our wicked ways, <laughs> change what we're doing, it'll come back and forgive us. It's amazing. <laughs> you joined World Vision after your time in Niger. Yes. What is it you're trying to achieve? Well, um, yeah, I, I joined World Vision in 1999. We'd lived in Niger 17 years. And I thought, wonderful. The world's my oyster. This organization works in 100 countries. So I always had this big vision that, you know, most countries in the world, to one degree or another, suffer the consequences of deforestation. And in poorer countries, people feel it more keenly because 
their livelihoods depend on the environment. And so I thought, this is wonderful. I'm going to roll this out across the world with, with others, with the team that I'm in, with the World Vision Partnership worldwide. And as it's become so widely accepted that climate change is real, it's getting worse, and tree restoration not only addresses poverty and um, land productivity and, and uh, income security and so on, it draws down carbon dioxide. And so now I have very big vision to share this as widely as possible within the World Vision family, so across those 100 countries. But this is too good to keep to ourselves and the need too great for any one organization to solve it alone. So we're actively sharing it with any other organization, government entity, or passerby who will listen to us <laughs> to, to get it out there and get more people doing it. <laughs> is that working? It is. It is, especially since 2012. So we had our first international conference on this method, and the conference was called Beating Famine. And it was held in Nairobi uh, jointly with the World Agroforestry Centre. And it's, it was amazing that most frequently asked question was, what is it? How does it differ to tree planting, to agroforestry, to this and that? So there was total ignorance on what it was. We just completed the third in that series of conferences in Mali, West Africa. I think it was in 2019. There was no such question. We saw so many of the booths of different projects and government entities displaying the work they were doing in FMNR. The donors were fully aware of it, and some of them were already funding this method of restoration. So I, I just called it FMNR. That's the, the abbreviation of Farmer Managed Natural Regeneration. And many of the topics, the presentations, were about FMNR. So it's gone from obscurity to being a household name in those circles, mm. right up to the level of the United Nations. So this decade, we're in the UN decade for ecosystem restoration. And World Vision, because of our work in this area, is an, uh, an approved supporter of the UN Decade and many other recognitions as well. So, yes, it's working and it's gaining momentum. So you have been a missionary and an agronomist, a, you know, forest maker. There's, there's a bunch of things mixed in here together that most people would think of as separate, right? You know, there's a thing that missionaries do. They go and spread their religious views. There's reforestation programs. That's a different thing. Famine relief is something else. Um, but you're kind of doing all of these things together. How does that fit together? I, I think that's a Western idea that we are separate parts. So the spiritual side of our lives, the physical side and, and so on. People in developing countries are more holistic in their outlook. And I, I guess I get my inspiration from Jesus himself, who healed the sick. He fed the hungry. And he preached good news to the poor. So there's no division there. And I modeled my ministry, my work, on that. And I mentioned that 1983 drought that was followed by famine. How could I say to people, yes, Jesus loves you, but not in time of famine? It was ridiculous. And so I would say if it's considered to be feeding the hungry, if that's considered to be a Christian thing to do, and I'm pretty sure... There'd be no, no disagreement with that. How much more Christian is it to prevent hunger in the first place? 
and give people their dignity that they're providing for their own families. So I find it hard actually to understand where the division came from in the first place. Because hmm. you talked about agroforestry. Yes. Have I got that right? Because we usually think of agriculture and forestry as separate as well. But you... Well, well um, I, I didn't invent that. It's um, very common, particularly in tropical countries, and I, I guess going back more historically before the modern era, blending trees, particularly productive trees. They may have been may have been fruiting trees or nut trees with an annual crop as well. It's not an anomaly. It's quite common, and I, I guess we've tried to bring people back to that. And actually, I feel going into a hotter world, it will only be the farmers who have strategies like this and can lower temperatures, reduce moisture evaporation, increase organic matter in the soil through having trees and crops together. They will be the only farmers that really not only survive, but actually thrive. Amazing thing. And, you know, we, we didn't realize this at the time, but the species we were regenerating we're actually bio-irrigating the crops. And what I mean by that is the deep taproot was drawing on water deep in the soil profile. And at nighttime, that water comes up and it leaks through the shallow roots within reach of the crop roots. And I've got a stunning photo where nearly all of the paddock has no trees and the crops dead or very dwarfed. But close to the base of this tree, the crop is under no drought impact whatsoever and it looks like a normal crop. Apart from the lower temperature and maybe protection from insect eating birds and so on, that tree was watering the crop. So agroforestry, um, it's a wonderful strategy. Again, it's a false division. Who said that the disciplines of agriculture and forestry were separate? In nature, it's one big continuum. Finally, Tell me about your hopes for the future. Are you hopeful about where we're headed? We're facing some pretty big crises. Um, what are your sources of hope, if so? You know, I'll tell a little story. <laughs> so one day I drove the vehicle out towards the villages and I stopped in this barren area, like it was more barren than normally. <laughs> the soil had actually become compacted and um, nothing, nothing growing there. And I, I stepped out of the vehicle and there's a number of football fields in area. So it's quite a significant area, looked like the moon. And I, I shook my head and I thought, nothing will ever grow here again. But the day before it had rained and I looked down at my feet and there's a little crack in that concrete-like soil and a green plant popping up through that crack, just a tiny little speck of green. And in that moment, I, I remembered the reading that I'd had in my quiet time that morning. It, it actually comes from Psalm 104, verse 30. And it says, when you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. And, you know, up until that point, I'd felt this great burden. It was all up to me to fix the problem. It was all on my shoulders. But I, I realized, no, it's, it's not solely up to me. God's not only in the business of healing broken people and calling them to himself, he's equally in the business of renewing and healing the earth. And I just thought, oh, this is wonderful. I'm doing God's work with him. He will help. He will give wisdom. He'll show us what to do. And so I think God actually loves creation much, much more than we do. And, and that gives me 
so much hope and I've seen so many answers to prayer and, and solutions to problems that seemed unsolvable. I, I don't despair about the future. As bleak as it looks, there are solutions. Before we said goodbye, I asked Tony, is there anything we haven't covered that you think it's important to say? There was. Well, I, I think that last question was a beauty because I, you know, I, before COVID, I spoke all around the world. I guess I still do, but I find so many people fearful for the future, particularly young people. Climate change has almost got them before it's arrived, you know, defeated before it's arrived. And I, I like to encourage them and say it's never too late. Do what you can within your means, within your circle of influence. And then when you get to that level, you'll always be able to see further and do more. And what's more, what's amazing is when you take a step in the right direction, others will come to your aid. Others will join you. So, yeah, don't be discouraged and don't certainly don't give up. It's not too late. It's difficult, but it's not impossible. This has been Life and Faith from the Centre for Public Christianity. I'm Simon Smart. And Natasha Moore has been speaking with Tony Renordo. Tony's book, The Forest Underground, Hope for a Planet in Crisis, is due out soon from ISCAST if you'd like to know more about his story and about farmer-managed natural regeneration. Now, I'm certain you know someone who could use a story of hope like this one especially if there are young people in your life who are grappling with the reality of changing climate. Do share this episode with them. As always, we'd love for you to write us a review, rate us, subscribe, tell your friends about life and faith. We always want to reach more people with stories like Tony's. Next week. Why is it me opening your eyes to a different world? Why don't you have any Asian friends or black friends or poor friends or friends from the other side of the river in the western suburbs? But my biggest readers are the woke people. It would be a wonderful thing if they brought less of my books and caught the bus across to Footscray and played basketball with some kids in the commission flats or something. <laughs>